Lord, this morning as we open your word and we discover what that means for us, I pray that each one of us, whether we are far from you or whether we are close to you, would we come to have the kind of hope that this text can produce, that there is no one outside the reach of your love and your mercy, that the life and the death and the resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ, means that we can have far more than optimism about the future. We can have certainty. So God, would you come and do this work? This is not something that I can do. I, I cannot persuade anyone here, but you can. And through your spirit, you can speak through your word. And so God, would you do it? Would you come and minister to us now? And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Who's ever heard the phrase, guilty by association? Have you ever heard that? No one. Okay, well. <clears throat> this is going to be harder than I thought. <clears throat> the, the phrase, guilty by association, which you're all lying because I know you've heard that before, simply means that you can get in trouble for something somebody else did if you're with them. That's a really, that's Jacob's basic definition of guilty by association. Parents, you've probably warned your children at some time about the crowd they're hanging out with because they might become guilty by association. Okay, we, we kind of know how this works. It's a legal term that means that someone can be found guilty not because they committed the actual crime but because they are associated with that person or that situation or that group or whatever it might be. And this is kind of the situation that we're encountering here in Luke chapter 5. The religious leaders of the day are watching Jesus and his, his association with icky sinners, tax collectors, blech. And they're saying, this is going to hurt your reputation. You don't, why are you associating with these kinds of people? But we're actually going to see that it doesn't go that way. It's the opposite. Jesus is the one who has the influence. Jesus is the one who transforms lives. So let's get into the text. Levi, who we meet here in Luke 5, is the same person as Matthew. Levi, Matthew, same person, two names. This is similar to Simon, who is also called Peter. We went through that whole thing and we started Matthew's gospel. Levi would have been his given name, his Hebrew name. Matthew being his Greek name or his Roman name that he used when he's collecting taxes and working with the Romans. Now, I know we probably all have a certain distaste for taxes and taxation, especially where we live, it seems like taxes are pretty high and often our tax money goes to fund things we don't really agree with or we wouldn't choose. And in the providence of God, this <laughs> became very real for us. We're downstairs on Friday getting some things ready for Christmas and um, knock on the door and it's the assessor. Many of you know we just put an addition on for my parents and they're there to not raise my taxes, but evaluate my property. <laughs> Gross. So <clears throat> I was kind of snippy with him, and Tiff had to remind me he's just doing his job. It's, it's not his fault, whatever. But that's the kind of distaste we have for this kind of thing. But you have to remember that in this context with Matthew and Jesus, it is far worse it is not just someone coming to kind of politely tell you that your taxes may go up in the coming year. Tax collectors were wicked people. 
who used extortion, violence, threats, whatever they had to do because the Romans, if they wanted more money, so Rome is the power, the governing power over this area at the time, they don't have a town hall meeting. They don't try to pass a levy. They just tell the tax collectors, get the money. And it doesn't matter how they do it. So these tax collectors, often Jewish men who were willing to work with the Romans, would go out and get the taxes by any means possible. Not a good situation. So Matthew, Levi, is a Jew who works for the Roman government collecting taxes from his fellow Jews. I mean, this is not a well-liked man. This is not someone who's really popular at the bowling alley when they meet there on Saturday nights. Not only is he hated for betraying his own countrymen and selling them out to the Romans, but he's considered outside, he's, he's interacted with Gentiles. Gross, right? If you understand the Jewish system, that is unclean. That is, well, we separate those things. So Matthew is like doubly hated for betraying his own people, in a sense, and working with the Romans and just by having contact with them. And yet, here is Jesus calling this Matthew, this tax collector, this sinner, to leave what he has and follow him. And we read in verse 28 of Luke chapter 5, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Now this kind of relationship is not typical. This was not common for Jewish people who had any kind of reputation or any kind of public image to associate with people like tax collectors. They were lower class. They were less than. They were kind of scum. And as I said, many of them used illegal or unethical ways of gathering their tax. They were the bottom of the social ladder. But as we know, there is no accident with what Jesus does. There is no coincidence, so to speak. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing when he calls Matthew. And as we keep reading in Luke chapter 5, we see the kind of effect that this call has on Matthew's life. He immediately leaves what he's doing, leaves it aside, and he throws Jesus a pretty good-sized party and invites him to be the honored guest at this celebration. You can see that in the wording of verse 29. Levi made him a great feast. This was in Jesus' honor. And I think this party is sort of a physical representation of a spiritual reality. If we keep going... In Luke's gospel, in Luke 15, Jesus is going to talk about the great rejoicing that happens in heaven when a single person repents and comes to faith. And what happens here is when Matthew is converted, when Jesus calls him, there is a celebration. So it's kind of picturing what's going on here in a spiritual sense. Now parties were a little bit different probably then than they are now. We have a party sometimes, it's in our house, people could drive by, they have no idea what's going on. Or, in this case, they're likely outside in kind of a more public courtyard kind of setting of the home. So this makes it easy for the Pharisees to know what's going on. Now, who are the Pharisees? They are the religious establishment of the day. The Jewish leaders, the ones who taught the law, who knew the Torah, who were the ones in charge of teaching the people. Now, ever since Luke chapter 4, they've been keeping a really close eye on Jesus. Because Jesus, in Luke 4, goes into the synagogue, opens the scroll of Isaiah, reads from Isaiah 61, and connects himself to that messianic prophecy. 
He's saying, it's here. I'm him. I'm the Messiah. Now all the religious leaders are going, hmm, we don't think that's right. We don't trust you. So they're kind of keeping a real eye on him. And what they're doing is they're waiting for an opportunity to trip him up. They are waiting for some chance to catch this alleged Messiah in some kind of breaking of the law, some kind of disreputable situation. So they're watching Jesus at this party with all these nasty people, at least in their estimation, trying to get him to be tripped up or find something they can accuse him of. They don't believe he's who he says he is. And they think they have him here using the old guilty by association trick, right? That we just talked about. Look at verse 30. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Why are you associating with these kinds of people? What is your problem? Don't you know we don't have anything to do with them? They are icky. We don't talk to them. We don't touch them. We don't hang out with them. What are you doing? So they think they have them in this sort of trap. Now notice two things. They do not have the guts to address Jesus directly. Rather, they go to his disciples. And they're kind of, I think that word grumbling is so appropriate. They're kind of just miffed. They're kind of ticked off. Look, what's he doing? What's he doing over there? You see what he's doing? So they go to the disciples and they try to stir up kind of some of this controversy. Now also, another thing to notice, they have scribes with them. Scribes were basically lawyers, very well trained. They knew all the theology, all the doctrine, which means the Pharisees are ready for a fight. They're ready for a debate. They are trying to find some reason to pin Jesus down, and if he says anything, they can go, nope, we got the lawyers, they'll prove you wrong. So they're kind of out on this hunt. They're, they're looking for something to trip Jesus up with. Now in verse 29, Luke refers to Levi's dinner guests as what? Tax collectors and others. But when the Pharisees talk in verse 30, what do they say? They call them tax collectors and sinners. So again, we're just being painted this picture that the crowd is disreputable. They are not good people, at least as far as most people would think of them, to be hanging around. This is not a gathering of the prominent members of the community. This is the kind of party you would not want to be seen at. Then in verse 31, Jesus responds to their question. And in 31 and 32, this is where we get the purpose statement. Why did Jesus come? Read verses 31 and 32 with me again. And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So do you see why this purpose statement of Jesus is paired or coupled with the calling of Matthew, Levi? Can you, can you understand what's going on here? Matthew and his kind are the ones who are considered to be outside of the pale. They're, they're not the ones you would assume to find in the synagogue. They're not the kind of ones who seem to have an interest in spiritual things. They are sinners, defiled. And yet Jesus says, that's exactly who I came for. That is why I am here. Now who in this room goes to the doctor when you feel 100% healthy? Who makes an appointment and goes and sees a physician and says, hey, I'm doing great, I just, just want to let you know, 
I don't need anything. I'm good. No, nobody does that. Who is it that needs to see a doctor? Sick people. (laughs) People that need help. People who cannot, on their own, remedy their situation and must rely on the wisdom, the expertise, the strength of another. And Jesus is using this analogy to help his hearers understand the reason why he came. Of course a doctor is going to go to the sick. Why would he go to the healthy? They don't need him. This is something that the religious leaders just didn't understand about Jesus. Almost everything he did seemed backwards to them. Why would you go there? Do you know who they are? Jesus says, yeah, I know exactly who they are. Now a couple points of clarification I think we need to make. Jesus is not saying, so not saying, he is not saying that there are some in this world who are good and some who are bad and he came to help the bad people be good. Okay, when we read about the sick and they need a doctor and the righteous and whatever, Jesus is not saying, oh, there's some people who are just kind of naturally okay. I didn't come for them. They're okay. I came for the really desperate situations. That is not what Jesus is saying. That is absolutely false. Don't push the analogy to mean something absurd. Don't push it to mean that some are sick and Jesus just kind of wants to help them. It's not the point. Second, don't push the use of the word sick to mean that we just need a little bit of help. Sometimes when you're talking about being sick to someone else and they say, oh, you should, you should go to the doctor, just help you kind of get over the hump. You ever heard that? Just kind of, you just need a little boost, a little vitamin C. You got to get over that. You, just, you need a little bit of help. Is that what Jesus is communicating here? That we are mostly good, but we just need, just need a little help. You just need a little bit of, get over the hump. You just need a little bit of vitamin C in your life. Jesus did not come into the world to make wonderful people more wonderful. He came into the world, as we are going to see, to call absolutely hopeless sinners to life everlasting. That is the reason why he has come. We see it so clearly in verse 32, don't we? Read it again. I have not come to call the righteous, but I have come, here's the positive, but to call sinners to repentance. And there it is. That is the purpose. That is why Jesus came into the world. That's why he lived a life, died a death, rose again. He came to call sinners to repent. But here in verse 32, we have the same kind of interpretive challenges, don't we? Is Jesus saying that some are just naturally righteous? Some have it figured out. I'm, I don't, I'm not calling them. They're already good. I don't have to do anything. They're good to go. But I'm going to go to the people who are really desperate. Is that what he's saying in verse 32? No. <laughs> no, he is not saying that. That would contradict so many, so many texts in the Bible. So what does he mean? Well, I think if we understand the way that he is using the word righteous... It's really going to help us in our understanding. So let me explain what's going on here. The Bible uses the word righteous or righteousness in a couple of different ways. It can refer to who we are and it can refer to what we do. Okay? Who we are and what we do. First, it can mean 
our standing or our position before God. This is the who we are kind of internal reality. Paul gives us a really thorough treatment in Romans 3 and 4. I commend that to you. Let me just summarize by reading Romans 4, chapter, chapter 4, verse 5. And to the one that does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So what are we talking about here? We're talking about identity, salvation, who we are. And Paul says, it's not the one who works for it. It's not the one who does the thing that is righteous. It is the one who has faith in Jesus. And by virtue of God's justifying act, all of those, all of us in this room who have faith in Jesus are righteous. Not on the basis of what you have done, but on the basis of what Christ has done. And his perfection is then transferred to us in this unbelievable act of justification. That's who we are, righteous before God. But the word can also refer to what we do, the external, the observable things that we do in our obedience to God. Let me give you two examples, both from Paul. Paul says in Titus chapter 3 and verse 5, God saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. So here again, we're talking about salvation. We're talking about identity. And Paul says, it is not on the grounds of your righteousness, meaning what? Your works, your deeds, the observable parts of your life. It has nothing to do with that but rather God saves us in his own mercy. In Romans chapter 5, Paul makes a really similar argument to what Jesus is saying here in Luke chapter 5. Listen to Romans 5, 7 and 8, and we'll move on. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. So do you see how Paul is using the language? It's a bit confusing. Let me just summarize really quick. In this context, Paul is saying that the righteous one is the one who does the religious thing. The one who is all about the exterior, the show, the bravado, always taking their good works and shoving it in the face of people saying, look at me. Look at how awesome I am. Look at the good things I'm doing. Paul says nobody's going to lay down their life for that kind of a person. A braggart, a boaster, someone who appears to be righteous, but a good man, one who knows his need, one who knows his standing before God and demonstrates the fruit of the Spirit called goodness. That's the kind of guy someone will sacrifice for. Do you see what's going on? Do you see the contrast that's being made between a righteous kind of external Goodness and the internal. I think that's how Jesus is using the word back in Luke 5. So with that in mind, read verse 32 again with me. I have not come to call the righteous. And now we know what that is, right? The, the external, the boaster, the showman. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. 
So the kind of righteousness Jesus is talking about is the kind of righteousness that the Pharisees loved. They loved it because it was external. It was observable. They could look like they had everything put together by praying loud prayers and publicly giving large gifts and making a big deal out of what they tithed and what they didn't eat and how they washed their hands. It was all external. And Jesus is going to blow that out of the water as we get further into Matthew's gospel. But for here, he is saying this kind of hollow, legalistic adherence to the law, making everything external, that's not what he's interested in. That is not the reason he came. These kind of people had no apparent need for a savior because they thought they already had everything all together on the basis of their own works. And Jesus says, I didn't come for you. I didn't come for that kind of person. Now, it's not because Jesus is unwilling to forgive them. It's not because he's being mean and manipulative and he doesn't want them in the kingdom. They kept themselves out through their righteousness. Do you hear the warning for us in that? And here, I think, is where the hope of what we celebrated this time of year, the hope of the coming of Jesus, is so sweet. You see, the Pharisees and the religious leaders, those deemed righteous, kept themselves out because they would not enter the kingdom by the means that Jesus required, namely humility and repentance. You see, sinners understand their unworthiness. Sinners understand their need of a Savior, how they have fallen short. They understand there's nothing I can do to earn a position before God. I'm not going to try to impress him with my works or impress him with what I do or what I don't do. They know their state. I think David expresses this well in Psalm 51, this prayer of confession, and he draws a distinction in what pleases God, was it the external things or the internal things? Psalm 51, 17 says this, for you will not delight in a sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering, the external things, the, the visible things, but the sacrifices of God, the ones that he will accept, are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. The reason that Jesus states his purpose in coming right alongside the call of Matthew, just put this all together, the reason this is in one section is because Matthew exemplifies the kind of people Jesus came to save. Sinners. Those who seem to be far from the kingdom. Those who seem to have no apparent desire for spiritual things. And Jesus walks right past the righteous. And he says to Matthew, you're the one I came for. Isn't that great? Do you know why that is so great? Because every one of us are Matthew. There is not a single person in this room who has not broken God's law. All of us have sinned. We have committed adultery 
by turning our back on God and pursuing fleshly desires. We have murdered through our anger. We have built houses on sand and have judged everyone around us without considering our own state before God. We have sinned. We are exactly who Jesus came for. Exactly. This is the great hope of what Christmas means for us. You don't have to clean up your life to come to Christ. You don't have to put on the external righteousness of your filthy works. All you have to do is humbly repent and believe the gospel that Jesus Christ came not for the righteous, but for sinners. You do not have to continue to carry the weight of your sin, the guilt, the shame, the pressure, the questioning, the doubt. Lay it down. Just get rid of it. Cut it off your back. Lay the burden down at the feet of the cross. This is why Jesus came as a baby. And the thing that we're celebrating here is that Jesus didn't stay a baby. He grew to be a man who lived in righteousness, who died a perfect sacrificial death on our behalf and rose again so that now anyone, anyone who will turn from their sin, repent and believe the gospel can be saved. So you can either leave here this morning and go celebrate Christmas continuing to carry the burden of your own sin and be miserable for the rest of your life or you can lay it down and you can trust that Jesus Christ, the baby that was born at Christmas, he has paid the price so that you can stand before God and God will say, righteous because of Jesus. Let's pray. What a gift, Father. None of us would have planned redemption in this way. It seems so backwards at times. To conquer through weakness to require humility and brokenness to enter. This all seems upside down. But God, I am so thankful for the encouragement of this text that as we see Matthew, a wretched, sinful man called into glory and life, it gives us all hope that we have not gone beyond your reach. God, there are, I am sure, people in this room who have yet to lay down their burden, who have yet to bow the knee to Christ. And we know now that Jesus came to call sinners, but how does that work? Well, he calls through his word. He calls through my voice. Calls through exposure to the gospel and the work of the Holy Spirit. So God, come this morning, minister to the hearts here, convict of sin, bring about repentance by the power of your spirit and may none of us leave here still carrying the weight of our sin but would we lay it down at the foot of the cross. I praise you for this wonderful reality, for the salvation that you have provided through Christ 
And I pray now, Lord, that you would press this in to the corners of our hearts. Change us. Renew us. Refresh us. And help us to go from this place rejoicing at the good news of Christmas. Oh, Lord, we give you thanks. And even now as we come to the table, we we celebrate the very thing that has purchased our redemption. So make this a sweet time. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.